Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Hello, everyone. I am Corey Andrew Powell, and it is an honor today to be joined by Pashtana Durrani. Pashtana is an Afghan human rights activist whose focus is girls' education, and she's also the founder of Learn Afghanistan, which is a grassroots organization established to safely and securely provide education to girls through a distributed network of tablet computers and using an offline platform. Pashtana, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Thank you so much for having me. It is my pleasure. And I do want to stress right there in that opening when I mentioned uh, the Learn Afghanistan platform is offline. Is that a specific function that is purposeful so that it's not trackable? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I think one of the reasons that we work with offline platforms like Rumi or like Skills Ed, the reason that we use those modules is um, because we don't have a lot of internet in Afghanistan and also not a lot of electricity. So imagine you're a kid in a mountainous region and you still want to access learning material, but you don't have internet. And I come from a district where internet, the <laughs> mobile signals go down on 6 p.m. So imagine internet is a big luxury. So um, the offline uh, module is just to make sure that if you want to learn in the night, if you want to learn in the evening, if you want to learn any time of the day, you don't have to worry about the internet. That's the most important part. That's amazing. So you've already uploaded the curriculums, basically, and they just go through it on their own. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a different models. Over the course of years, we have perfected a lot of models for different, uh, because not every child is the same. So if you are in a rural region and you want to access our learning materials, but you don't have a learning in-person uh, space like we have for some people in different regions, um, you can download all the content or we can help you download all the content on that platform and you can access it anytime and you can study at your own pace. If you have questions, you can just reach out to us through Facebook or something like that. Or you can just call the facilitators and then there's another model which we call hybrid that we are running right now in the secret schools where we collect all these students in the same space but the teachers teach them through google meet and um what they do is like they use the platform when they're at home and because we don't have the whole day to teach them they only come for three hours two hours given the situation so that when they go back home they use that platform to learn then we have a radio component where kids who might not know about us, Afghanistan is a big country. So there's an education R where they just listen to our program and it's given an auditory lesson. So yeah, Mm. all those models. Yes, and I know that's a big deal for you because you were, I read the part about you uh, being in love with Encarta. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That was such a big space, space for me. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I mean, but some, but you know, you learned a lot there, though. I mean, it's, you were, it was funny how you said it didn't really equate to what they thought was important, but you learned so many facts. And, oh, and yeah. I think a lot of people learn that way. They just 
absorb it. So I love that you said students learn differently. So you're adjusting your, your models to modules to work with that. Now to, to date, uh, you have educated 7,000 girls and boys in Kandahar, Afghanistan, trained more than 80 teachers digitally so they can uh, facilitate these programs. And then you also have initiatives for girls' health as well, like menstrual hygiene. And you, you really are making a difference in these girls' lives. But I want to just talk about how you got there because you yourself, you have a long history of being an educator, if you will, because you started like at seven years old, right? (laughs) In your father's school, was it? Yeah. 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 So talk a little bit about that because I want to just tell you before I begin, I want to hold up your book, which is an amazing book called Last to Eat, Last to Learn. Make sure I get my glare off the book there. Your father is a rock star to me. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. he is so incredible. So, and your mom's awesome too, but you know, your father had this very different position from an Afghan father point Perspective, of view. Yeah. And so I'd love just to talk a little bit about the fa- the the influence your father had and how you were educating people with him at seven years old. I think uh, when uh, people talk about Afghan men, all they see is like men who are controlling or who are the sort of people who don't want a lot of liberty for their kids. I remember when I was six, five years old, he was like, your only ticket to freedom from this craziness is like if you get educated. And it's not like a father, like, you know, normally people are like, oh, you'll get educated, you'll go somewhere. He was like, no, that's your only freedom ticket. Um, Later on, I understood why he said that, because as much as my father was a progressive man, when he passed away, there was a crazy world that I entered where all my uncles, my cousins, Mm -hmm. really wanted me gone from that space where I wanted to take over his uh, position. But then you look at this uh, space where he created not this for me, he created this for his sister, because his sister was divorced uh, in a place, in a space where divorces were not common. You don't do that in tribal ruler regions. And you don't do that in our community. And she had a divorce and she was sent to study post that. And then she comes back. And one thing I remember is like, my dad didn't become a feminist because of me. I'm going to be honest. He became a feminist because of his mother and sister. What they went through, the repressive cultural norms or the social norms that we have in place. And he's like, I want to change that for everyone and he started with his sister then I came into the play of course I did resemble his mother a lot so that was a win-win for me (laughs) um but uh, the best part was like he was not choosing women to do that for them oh she's my daughter I'm gonna do it for her she's my second daughter I'm gonna no for him every village girl is supposed to come to the school and learn and the funny thing is which I hated back in the day was like I used to go to this private school in the morning and I used to study all subjects in English and then in the evening because we had a two-time school for younger girls in the morning for older girls who couldn't make it in the morning because they were doing house chores would come in the evening and I was forced to sit with those girls and teach them everything I learned in the school so if I was learning anything in English I was supposed to do that and for me it was horrible because it's like I learned the morning time I did my time why am I doing it again right, 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 right. <laughs> but um, but I was taught like this is your social responsibility if you're privileged enough to be able to afford a private school 
you should be sharing that knowledge. And I think a lot of that subconscious conditioning is the reason that this makes me feel that we are responsible for our communities and our country, and we should be the one doing everything to build from scratch. So yeah, a lot of that. But I do remember like my father being the sort of person, he's like, the way out of this chaos is education or make this chaos better, you know, one yeah, of the two yeah. things. Mm. So yeah, I admire him for doing that. And he has stood up to his own brothers for me, to his own community. I mean, when I was 14, I was sent to a boarding school and um, I remember people, his cousins telling him, what if she brings bad name? And my father was like, so what? Like, you know, she'll bring bad name and then she'll marry the guy. So what? Like for right, him, right. saying that is a big deal, you know, mm-hmm. um, but he was okay with that or he had to make himself okay with that, comfortable with that uh, thing. And uh, I'm so um, fortunate that now, People in my family who were not sending their daughters to school send their daughters to school because of me. Mm. So um, it's not just because of me, but because of my father. But it's an important step, including in my own family, you know? Yeah, it's wonderful. You're carrying on his legacy because, you know, through the pages of this book, his passion for education comes through and and his passion for wanting you to learn comes through. And I, I just want to, I love these moments so we can really clarify some things for people who don't understand certain cultures. When you say uh, bring on a bad name, would that be marrying outside of the Afghan culture? Is that what that would mean? Or for you to do something that was dishonoring or what would that mean exactly? So uh, it's a lot of things. It's a lot of things. You could uh, be uh, hanging out with friends that are not good company. Uh, you could be, heading somewhere without a scarf or without your proper hijab. Mm. Uh, uh, even to this date, like if I upload a picture on my WhatsApp status without a scarf, my sister's like, why are you doing this? Don't do that. <laughs> okay. I'm like, okay, control, calm down. <laughs> right, right. I'll put the scarf on. Okay. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I'm not saying it's a repressive thing. It's just a sort of thing that we're conscious about. It's sensitive towards our mm. own community. And, yeah. um, or like, you know, I fall in love with a guy because I was going to a co-ed private school. So he's like, oh, if she falls in love with with a guy in a boarding school in a foreign land what if she is like you know brings bad name and like mm. you know talks to him oh my god so sort of that sort of stuff um but he's like okay so what she'll marry the guy that's it like that would be the <laughs> like that would be the world coming down but yeah uh, for a ruler man and still being in um in those tribal regions and being able to stand up to like you know more than 50 men in your own uh, community and family um just to send your like teenage kid to school uh, is big move. It's a big yeah. move. I appreciate him on that. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's wonderful. And you speak about the social structure as well a lot for girls. And I love. Well, first of all, the title of the book alone, where you say "last to eat, last to learn," it is quite literal in that <laughs> regard. Because yeah. I, the part where you speak about being um, on the refugee camp as your family were, uh, and all the girls around you were. Greatly, a lot of them were um, illiterate, but also hungry. And then you talk about the structure of eating in the household. And that's like a traditional Afghan family tradition. Like the norm would be that there's a a, a hierarchy in who eats. So can you share that a little bit? So for starters, uh, one thing that we have to understand is like, it's not generally done this way, but given the structures or the poverty that's in Afghanistan right now, it's most commonly practiced. And um, of course, the research shows that uh, girls go hungry to bed even now, and Afghanistan girls are the ones who are going angry to bed. But then again, in the structure, I have seen it in my family. The men are served first. The boys are served with them. 
then the young kids are served, then women eat, and then the with, with the women, the older daughters eat, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, those are the last lines to eat. And sometimes I'm, of course, challenged with it, and people are, like, offended by it. Oh, we don't do that. We all eat together. Um, do you guys, though? <laughs> if we do, why do women go to bed hungry? Why do youngers go to bed hungry? Right, right. So, um, in practice, if, uh, like, you know, Afghans love their daughters, I wouldn't say otherwise. Um, but in general, if you're under the poverty line, if you're struggling with poverty, you would really want to feed a son who's going to go and do the work, who's mm. going to bring in money rather than the daughter okay. who's supposed to get married, you know. So that's the social structure. And with the refugee camps, I think majority of these young girls were malnourished even if they were fed majority of them were malnourished it's the same case even now um i was talking to one of the friends at wellesley and she was telling me that uh, there have been refugees in new jersey who wouldn't let their older daughter go to school and then the social services came in and stepped in because they thought that she should be doing the house chores you know so for me maybe i'm the oldest child so i'm doing a lot of that trauma healing but that does happen that does happen i was fortunate and privileged uh, enough not to go through that but you do need to voice in your concerns on what happens around you and that was something that did happen often around me yeah mm. and then even with education because for the families that did want education for their kids it would be the boys the males right first who would be considered for education not the girls because as you said the structure is that the girl is supposed to be married off yeah yeah and then she becomes part of another family structure and no longer part of what it was called the the gadcore i believe it was called gadcore so it's like when you live in a joint family we call it gadcore it's more like okay if you're bringing in something to the table we're going to invest more in you and i think it applies to everyone in the world it's not just afghans but it's highly um highlighted in Afghanistan more because of the social structures and also the social norms is like if a girl is uh like you know supposed to be getting married at 18 and 19 and they're told to be silent all the time they're told to be this person who's supposed to embody niceness decency and like you know uh, being kind to everyone um they don't need to like you know worry about long term so if it's a public school sure i'm gonna Mm -hmm. send you but if it's a private school and i can only afford one child's education i'm gonna invest in a kid who is my son who's gonna stay with me who's gonna take Mm -hmm. care of me in the old age so i think that that's the sort of mentality i mean it's uh, it's probably more like you know uh, back in the day the west (laughs) like they would invest more in the sons rather than the daughters and it still Mm -hmm. is applied to some parts of the world today yeah well, I was going to say, you know, quite honestly, I know America wants to be progressive and claim it's progressive, but, you know, we have that, those same sort of chauvinisms here oh, yeah, yeah. and preference for the male child and misogyny. And even recently I was doing a report on something and I saw that, you know, there are a lot of the Southern states just a few years ago had to change the date of consent for marriage because there were men marrying like 12-year-olds and 11-year-olds in Tennessee and Oh, yeah, yeah. I have seen a lot of reports that those reports scare me. And like, even with like, you know, Britain, I think I was reading it 
two weeks ago or something that they didn't have the same policy for them. Like, you know, with the age to get married. Yeah, yeah. And the, it's different I was in different so places. I was so shocked. I was so shocked. Like, I was like, these were the people who were preaching human rights to us. <laughs> yeah, believe me. I, I, I mean, you know, I, it's a struggle sometimes because I, you know, I, I love my country, but I'm the first one to also call my country out. And, you know, so we have a lot of our own things. And I've read just a couple of years ago that up until like, I think 2000, maybe it was 2010, the youngest child to get married in America legally in Tennessee was like nine years old or something. Wow. Like really. So, you know, we have our issue, <laughs> our issues yeah, with that too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's all over the world. Like uh, young girls are like s- treated this transaction uh, as like part of this transaction. Oh, if I murdered your brother, you're going to give your daughter in like, you know. To, like as a payment. Uh, yeah. Like wash the bad like you know the blood between us because yeah, we're related yeah. um then and like you know at the same time like you know in the u.s like women gender pay gap or like every time you look at feminism it's seen as such a bad light and the same applies to the whole world i think the same goes for other countries but uh given that i'm from my own country and i'm going to talk more about that i think i do personally sometimes am hurt and i feel so weird when i talk about these things because it's my country's reality and you really mm. want to represent the good part of your country. Of course, of course. But you also can hide away from the reality of the country that it, we are still one of the repressive countries for women and we are still repressing a lot of women rights. There is no women rights in Afghanistan right now. And young girls' rights, you know, the part that's forgotten is this young women rights. Women at uh, some age, certain age, when they become mothers or older, they still have some sort of power or, or autonomy. Young girls don't. So that's sort of hurt. Like, you know, it's uh, hurting to see that. Yeah. Yeah. So in that early age, there's that window where these girls really are sort of owned or controlled by the government, if you will. Uh, right they... now, right now, yes, by the government. Back in the day, more by the social or cultural or the toxic masculinity norms mm-hmm. that were set in place. Oh, right. you're not supposed to go here. You're not supposed to show your face. You're not supposed to do that. Right. right. Why? Because you're a girl. Right, right. But now, if I'm not mistaken, and please correct me, um, the Afghanistan government is basically the Taliban government now, correct? Yeah, the de facto regime, yeah. Right. And so, unfortunately, with that comes a lot of the very extreme oppression of women. And that is where the banning of education for women comes from, when a really strict Sharia law, if you will, where women aren't supposed to learn, right? Are girls completely not allowed to go to school or is it that they can go to a school to a certain age and then they have to no longer, or they're no longer allowed to go. What is the balance there? So first we have to talk about Sharia where it's like confused, like, Oh, Sharia is a repressive sort of like, you know, anti-women sort of policy. If Sharia is so bad, then why is Saudi and like, you know, all these Middle Eastern countries still allowing their women to go to school? Um, we are like, you know, in the middle of two regional, uh, powers like Pakistan and Iran, they let their women go to school. So are they not Muslim enough? Like you have to question those. But then again, coming back to Afghanistan, to a certain age, which is like from grade one to grade six, which is like, you know, starting from age four to until you're 12, you can go to school. But 13 post that, you can't, you're not allowed. And the second year will just start in a week for girls, for people in Afghanistan for young students, but girls won't be allowed to go to school. The university just started for boys, but women are not allowed to sit in the same uh, settings. So yeah, that's the current repressive uh, policies towards young girls. 
Yeah. And that's also in addition to the social structure too, where the women, those other things are in place too, where you can't walk down the street with a man unless it's your husband or, I mean, there's all these things we hear and please correct me if I'm wrong, or you're not supposed to be in public with a man that's not your husband or something like that. I mean, for starters, we are like a different country. Like you don't go with someone, like if you don't know them, like I grew up in a family where I was not allowed to go out at a certain time. Um, I was not allowed to talk to uh, like, you know, unknown men and stuff like that. So, Mm -hmm. And that's normal. And that's I would normal. understand, I would understand why is that in place? Because we come from a different culture and that's part of our identity. That's normal. But then this sort of autonomy to make that informed decisions. Like when I was 18, I worked with, I volunteered with organizations where boys were there. And my father was fine with it because he didn't see anything bad in that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I was working with people and there seemed to be boys too. So that was not bad. But in today's Afghanistan, that's extremely bad. That's yeah, not possible. Yeah. That's like harassing. you couldn't go. Like you and I were working together, and I'm like, "Hey, Pashana, yeah, let's 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 go let's go to lunch," and we start walking oh, no. down the street. That's, <laughs> That's not, not happening. Wow. That's not happening. Yeah. Um. The same time, like you know, in Afghanistan, like yes, uh, when I was in Kandahar, I had to go everywhere with uh, my brother, or like you know, somebody in my family, or a man around me. Now it's more like you know, I remember talking to my cousins, and uh, he was telling me he's like the Taliban literally stopped a man and told him like, "Is she really your wife, or are you?" You, like you know taking someone else's wife and the guy got so pissed and he's like you know you explain to me if she's not my wife prove it to me you know and they broke into a fight and everything for me i was like how horrifying it would be for a man to take a sister a wife outside in today's afghanistan yeah. where they have to fight the whole world just to take her out to the doctor just to walk down the street yeah just to take her to the doctor or like you know just to take her shopping or like you know anything of that sort so it's a, it's a different afghanistan right now and in general we do not like to like you know mix with like the male population and that which is fine it's not something out of the normal people do that all over the world right right but the fact that you have to prove that you are related to this person and you have to carry your documents all day long. It's something depressive. It's something yeah, yeah. sad. Yeah. I mean, cause I know to your point, I mean, I think when you are from another culture, it's very easy to dismiss other people's everyday norms as weird or strange, but reality is, you know, respectfully, it's just not something we're familiar with and it's not strange or weird to the people who live in it. That's their culture. Yeah. I'm sure we have our things too that are, um, oh, kind yeah, of strange yeah. <laughs> people, oh yeah yeah you know so but you're right when it comes to the point where you have to now prove walking down the street id and making sure that's when it does become more of a very very um oppressive society which i guess is what afghanistan it's like now under the taliban yeah yeah mm. it's an oppressive society where women are not allowed to work Girls are not allowed to study. There is a domestic violence case you cannot report it because there is no setting in place. A lot of in, uh, like entities that tried helping women back in the day, they are not available anymore. There are no shelters for women. Um, and I, don't get me wrong. Yes, back in the day, Afghanistan's government was corrupt. Yes, we didn't have a lot of laws that were put there in practice. But it doesn't dismiss the fact that we had a constitution that gave us the rights, you know. So that's something we need to understand and the most important thing is today in Afghanistan you just can't have a normal family time if you are let's say a young married couple 
you cannot go to a park and have like, you know, a normal day. You cannot do picnic. That's not allowed. Uh, so uh, just for the social construction, let's forget education. Let's forget everything else. You're mad at you're doing the Islam thing, the proper thing. You are following every sort of like the law here you're properly married you have your documents and everything but he still can't have a good time outside so what would be the problem is well, like what's the what is looked down upon about a husband and wife for example having a picnic nothing, in the park nothing nothing back in the day everyone went out enjoyed the right, right. Karga or like dala yes, i mean yeah. we are known for like you know <laughs> kanaris are known for like you know their thursdays and fridays picnics over the mountains mm-hmm. in afghanistan like but, a lot of fun a lot of fun oh, Oh, yeah, yeah. so much fun, so much fun. We are green tea and our dry fruit and us just leaving to like any place there that has water was like mm-hmm. an obsession. But now it's more like, oh, that's not allowed. You're not supposed to be in public. It's more like erasure of public from mm. the public spaces. Yeah, and yeah. the sort of, it's like sort of instilling fear in people. Mm-hmm. Like you need to fear us. That's more of the sort of thing I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's always the core of every oppressive society. Even, oh, yeah. uh, again, with America, with um, a, a post-slavery America, we end up with a group called the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. And their whole purpose was to keep the other group fearful. So they wouldn't vote. They wouldn't ever want to come out of the house. It's like a, it's always replicated around the world when that sort of oppression I was watching this um, movie the other day, The Help. I don't know if you mm-hmm. know about it. Yeah. And I just couldn't believe that this was a few years back in the U.S., you know? Like, in my head, I couldn't believe. And then, at the same time, I kept on thinking to myself, I was like, in many ways, like, you know, people tend to think the West is better than the other countries. But in reality, they were the ones who were, like, abusing human rights to such an extent. Not that they have realized that they want to make sure that everyone is on the same page. But at the same time, you have to understand, even today's government in Afghanistan is a West-enabled government. Yes, even today's yes. policies that oppress women in Afghanistan are West-enabled uh, policies. And I don't get me wrong, there were good and bads in Afghanistan. I am, I went to college because of the taxpayers' money in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I'm going to accept that. I will never shy away from that. Um, but at the same time, women and human rights were abused back in the day. They're still being abused. And the West is just standing by. And that's shocking. Yeah. No, I know. There is definitely that affiliation with the, uh, the United States being involved with those policies in those different, very different countries in the Middle East, uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, um, Iran. Now we're having some issues, obviously, with. But I think what's important, too, is what you just said about people don't realize how recent certain history is. Yeah. And um, when it's not something that you're involved with, it doesn't feel like it's... Um, Current, but when, like, for example, when I think about the Taliban, it's not my culture. So to me, it's just like a headline that I read about in the news, and it's kind of every now and then I hear something happened, a little bit of a fight, but I lose sight of the fact that just people living under this every day. You just said, you know, you, you people aren't coming out of the house; they can't go anywhere, and that's on top of the other construct where you said in your book that normally an Afghan woman typically she would just be in the house. Yeah, anyway. my mom is at the, my mom is in the house twenty four by seven. I barely remember the last time she went out. But the point is, she had a choice and she doesn't now. That's the difference. That's the mm, difference that you need to understand. She had a choice and she doesn't now. Yeah, that's the only thing you need to understand. It doesn't mean I have to be out every day. 
I like that's the thing. I it's so hard to make others understand. It's like they're like, oh, were you threatened? No, I have the choice to go to work. Back in the day, now I don't. I had the choice to go to school. Now I don't. And yeah. the same goes for like him. People look at the Taliban through this lens. Oh, the Taliban are repressive uh, Afghan fighters. But nobody knows that it was University of Nebraska that sent us books that had all of that uh, material that radicalized our next generation. Um, Alif for Anar was changed to Alif for Allah, Jim for Jihad, Mean for Mujahid. And I remember reading those sentences where I, uh, my teacher would teach me and they would be like oh i should be proud if my uh, proud if my father is murdered or if my brother is martyred in the fight against the infidels mm. when they were fighting the cold war against the russians and stuff right. so imagine infiltrating into young minds at a primary level age and you radicalize a society to an extent where people think that it's their only mission uh, to save everyone and everything. And then you expect them to become normal yeah, and you wouldn't yeah. even pay for reparations. You wouldn't uh, even uh, like, you know, uh, uh, take uh, the responsibility and then you would label them. Oh, never mind. These people are like that. We were not like that in the 1960s. We have been a poor country, but we were very much a very um, independent country, you know, on the seventh uh, uh, anniversary of Afghanistan's independence a hundred years ago, um, Malika Suraya said that independence belongs to all of us when she was uh, like, you know, talking to Oxford University and she was like, we all deserve it. So when we all deserve it, why is our politics always being questioned? Why is our policies, our culture being infiltrated and radicalized, our religion mm. being used against us? Yeah. And the sad part is nobody realizes it anyways. Yeah. Oh, and you also, you mentioned Oxford, which is also a big part of your, I would say your your journey, which is when you were younger, about 16, I believe, you were uh, admitted to a, a preparatory yeah. study program at Oxford, which was like a dream come true. It's like the epitome of education for everyone in the world. And you did not go because you felt a greater calling to, well, I mean, I think you were, I think you wanted to go, but you felt a greater calling to stay around and educate other young girls in Afghanistan. Talk about that decision. And I guess you don't regret it now, but at the time, talk about how you were trying to balance that decision. I think uh, the reason that I regretted back in the day, like, you know, I, I not regretted, but felt sad about it was because my mother was so much opposed to it. And my father kept on telling me, like, you know, go study and then come back. And I'm so grateful I didn't listen to them, you know, mm. go study, come back, come back <laughs> yeah, with yeah. me now. And I cannot do anything now. So Yeah, yeah. Because all the work he's done <laughs> in that time it was is amazing work. You would have never done that work. If you exactly. Were, you know. So no, thank you. And uh, the, the only part is like, you know, I was in for a preparatory program. I applied to a lot of schools in Germany, in the UK, uh, anywhere I could find. And for me, it's like, uh, like I need to end up in a good university. I was, my dad used to make fun of me. He's like, Persona is obsessed with people's universities, like any 
big personality. <laughs> she just goes and checks their university. What <laughs> university did they go to? Like, right. what? Where did this person go to? I was at one point. I was so obsessed with like the world women leaders. I mm. checked. I was like, where did Indira Gandhi? And then it became like uh, Oxford. Oxford. Right? But yeah. then it came like she failed her Latin exam or something, and then later on she was given her degree and everything. And for me, I was like, oh, okay. Like you know, I was so obsessed to an extent I needed to know which exam did she go to or not go mm-hmm. to. Or like you know, the same went for a lot of women leaders. So for me, that was an obsessive sort of thing. I wanted to go to a good college. Maybe a lot of my conditioning was American television, and everyone mm. is obsessed with like you know going yeah, to yeah. college. But once I made the decision, I stick to it, and I'm so proud of myself. I mean, it, at the end of the day, it was a preparatory program. I don't know if I would have ended up in the Oxford, like you know, or not. Right, right. But then at the same time, like a lot of people, ninety percent of the people, end up in Oxford from that program. And the good part is, like nobody, people think when I'm like saying all of this, I'm saying it out of romanticism. No, I'm not. I love Afghanistan more than anything in the world. You know. There have been times where I have put it before my parents, which mm. normally is not a case with an Afghan child. They love their parents, you know. So for me, Afghanistan was the first priority. And I understood that if I could make a difference now, I shouldn't be waiting for it for four years later. Maybe I could go for my master's, like, you know, somewhere or something, which I am accepted into a very high prestigious school that I cannot talk about. Oh, well, <laughs> congratulations on that. <laughs> Thank That's you. Great. Thank you. Um, So... For me, taking that decision, sticking to it, doing everything. I mean, I had a lot of nervous breakdowns. I cried my eyes out. My mom did tell me, you horrible kid. I told you go to the school. And as, she threw the, as she threw the shoe at you. As- oh, all the time. <laughs> Shoes, hangers. I mean, at times she would be like, just give me like, you know, one of those Instagram side eyes you know like <laughs> like you know yeah. you you, you should have done it yeah 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 but now when i talk to her she's like you you know better so yeah all of that i mean it's uh at 16 i shouldn't be making those decisions but i'm glad i did that yeah and i have always been this headstrong person i do my own decisions and i'm a very decisive person so i'm glad my parents respected it though my father respected yeah that. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Pashtana Durrani, Afghan human rights activist and author of the amazing book, Last to Eat, Last to Learn. It's stunning, especially when you talk about the disappearing girls. I want people to really read about that and understand like why they're disappearing from all the different oppressive things you you'd highlight in the book. So thank you for being a guest today on Motivational Mondays. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.